Good evening. It's good to see you this evening. So glad that you have joined us for our midweek uh, worship and teaching time. Welcome to all of you that are online this evening. We're so glad you have joined us as well. Well, I invite you to stand and let's begin this, this evening by blessing the Lord. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship His holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul, I'll worship Your holy name. The sun comes up, it's a new day dawning it's time to sing your song again whatever may pass and whatever lies before me let me be singing when the evening comes bless the Lord oh my soul oh my soul worship I'll worship your holy name. You're rich in love and you're slow to anger. Your name is great and your heart is kind. For all your goodness I will keep on singing. Ten thousand reasons for my heart. Your holy name. 
worship the God who was. We worship the God who is. We worship the God who evermore will be. He opened the prison doors. He parted the raging sea. My God, He holds the victory. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. We won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. We won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. We sing to the God who heals. We sing to the God who saves. We sing to the God who always makes a way. Cause he hung upon that cross And he rose up from that grave My God still rolling stones away There's joy in the house of the Lord There's joy in the house of the Lord today We won't be quiet We shout out your praise There's joy in the house of the Lord Our God is surely in this place We won't be quiet Shout out your praise. We were the beggars, now we're royalty. We were the prisoners, now we're running free. We are forgiven, accepted, redeemed by His grace. Let the house of the Lord sing praise. We were the beggars. Now we're royalty, we were the prisoners, now we're running free. We are forgiven, accepted, redeemed by His grace. Let the house of the Lord sing praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord, there's joy in the house of the Lord today. We won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. We won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. We won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. Be quiet, we shout out your praise. Are you glad that we can come into this place? filled up with joy, we've been filled up with hope, we've been filled with God himself and reminded who he is, what he's done for us, and no matter what we can go through, we can go throughout our day, and we can worship our God, because he's worthy of our praise. Let praise be a weapon that silences the enemy, 
sit in your presence and at your feet and be reminded as we have through the lyrics of all these songs that you have put your joy in us because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit we ourselves are the house of the Lord we carry your spirit with us everywhere we go so we can always have hope can always have assurance. And even when times and circumstances of life try to tell us otherwise, we can be reminded of the lyrics of this last song that there's absolutely no one, no thing that compares with you. And you are the one that we've always been looking for in all of our searching. We end up at your feet. So we love you this evening. We run to you. Thank you for all you've done in our lives. Amen. You may be seated.
So go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as we continue in our study. A couple of things that uh, I know Tom's going to do church life here at the end to remind you of, but I, super, I want to highlight because they're super important. Um, a week from tomorrow is National Day of Prayer. And so our, our worship center here is going to be opened up all day from 8 to 8. Opportunity for you to be able to come in and pray anytime during the day. We're going to have prayer watches where we're going to have specific times at 9, noon, 3, and 6. So I want to encourage you all to plan on coming. And, and if you can come at those times, those would be great. We're going to, we're going to be praying um, and just gathering together. So I want to encourage you to that. The other thing that I want to remind you of is we have a trip that's going to be coming up in October. And so October 2nd to the 14th, we're going to be going to Turkey and... Uh, there's an extension trip that's going to Rome, and so we're going to be going and seeing the seven churches of Revelation. And I, I really encourage you, if you have the opportunity to go, I know that we're past Easter now, we can start kind of planning some things that are going on. So if you're interested in doing that, you can check out the website and uh, see all the information, or you can let me know or talk to Rachel, and we'll get you the information. It'll come up on us soon enough, but it is an amazing thing to happen. We are putting together biblical tours, so we, we wanted to do a Steps of Paul and COVID happened, so we're going we're gonna, to um, sidestep Paul's journeys. We're going to go right to Revelation, and then, Lord willing, uh, I want to put together a combo trip that's going to take us back to Israel and into Greece, which would be our next extension trip. But tonight, we're going to be in Corinth. Well, actually, we're going to be reading the letter of the Church of Corinth and, and working through... Paul's corrections here to a church that had become very carnal. And, and in that, he had to bring some correction to them. They'd been a church for quite a while, and they were really kind of messing things up. A friend of mine has this quote, and you've heard it said many times, No man is completely worthless. He can always serve as a horrible example. And, and the reality is, you, you look at a guy, you go, man, just that's, that's a complete waste of skin. I don't ever want to be like that guy. Well, there's value in the fact that you don't want to be like that person within that. So we look at this, and we're going to take a look at the account tonight in, in Acts 10, because all of history that has been given to us in God's Word is an example. It's been written for our forelearning. If we look back and look at things that went well and replicate those things in our lives, we'll do good. If we look and we see the things that didn't go so well, where societies crashed, people failed, we should learn from those mistakes and not replicate those within our lives. And so, whether good or bad, we can look at history and should look at history. In fact, it's been said that those that don't learn from history are destined to repeat it. And that's very true. We're actually seeing that happen in our country today because they fail to look at history and the falls of nations and especially the Roman Empire within this, the Grecian culture and some of these, these societies that have become really bad. Ultimately, though, it's up to us. It's up to you. It's up to me to determine how we're going to live and what examples we're going to follow and what kind of example we're going to leave for the next generation. Because I can tell you this, if I was to watch your kids eat and then watch you eat, I could tell who their parents are by how they eat. 
I could tell by how they talk. I could tell by because they they're little mimics, right? They're able to watch us, and so we got to understand we are setting an example for the next generation. And as we're going to see a little bit later, it's imperative for us to recognize generational sin and break off that generational sin so it doesn't pass on to the next generation within that. The problem is with this generational sin is the fact that the sins of the fathers can pass from generation to generation. I know the story from some of you guys and some I don't, but having been a pastor for a number of years, I can see patterns in counseling with people where the sins of the grandfathers pass to the fathers that pass to the sons and, and so on and so forth. And so when you take a look at this generational sin, it's a real deal. We, we inherit a lot of these behaviors because they become behavioral norms for us and we pass them on. And so we need to be able to break that pattern of our past parents' failures, and determined to be better. Now, who do you follow in order to be better? Well, you have to choose who you're going to follow. Ultimately, who should you follow? Jesus. So Paul continues in confronting the behavior of the church of Corinth and their bad behavior because they've fallen back into a pattern that was actually patterned in, in Israel themselves. They were carnal and they were living for themselves and... and Paul's concern was the same concern that I have for anybody else that is living in a carnal lifestyle. They think they're doing okay. Is there a danger when you're outwardly living a sinful life, but yet you think spiritually you're doing good with God? Yeah, that's that self-deception. And we're fooling ourselves. And Paul's concern is that they're going to live a life before God that's unapproved. And so what Paul is going to do for this Gentile church is he's going to bring them back to Israel, God's chosen people who should have known better, and he's going to reveal to them and say, you're following a bad example. And here's what the example looks like, and here's what the end looks like within that. One of the things that we're going to see is the, that is the bad example is this. Despite the presence Despite the power and despite the provision of God with the nation of Israel in the wilderness, they still acted as if God didn't care and did whatever they wanted to do and fell into idolatry. Why? Because the flesh craves all kinds of sin. As we're going to see that in verse 7. The flesh craves sexual immorality as we'll see in verse 8. The flesh will challenge God's authority in verse 9. And the flesh is going to complain in verse 10. So as we take a look at this, Paul is going to pull out some of these things. i got to caution you because tonight's study might hurt you a little bit. But you'll get through it. It's okay. As we take a look at this, let's start out with verses 1 through 5 in his letter. It's a continuing thought of dealing with this eating the meat that was sacrificed to idols, and the whole conflict with that where they thought it was okay to do that. And he says to them this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under a cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock, 
which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. So, Paul moves right in, and remember, this is a letter, so it would have been continuation in reading. He has this change of thought, and, he, and his first thought in this, in verses 1 and 2, is don't be ignorant. Don't be ignorant. Don't, don't be foolish in thinking that this is not going to happen to you. Isn't that one of the greatest dangers in self-reliance? This will never happen to me. I can do this. I got it under control. Don't be ignorant. One of the things that their ignorance was in is the fact that they thought that they could continue in sin and still be pleasing God. Is there a problem with that? Can you live blatantly in sin and still please God? Absolutely not. And so it's a complete disregard. But notice what he says. I don't want you to be unaware or ignorant, brethren. No, he brings them in and fathers. So when you see the word brethren and you see the word fathers, what do you think of? You should be thinking of family, right? So he's talking to them as, as within the family of Christ. He's trying to get them to understand that they're, they're in this family. The other thing that he is trying to get them to understand is there is a potential for this generational sin to, to be there. And so he reaches all the way back to Exodus 34, especially 6 and 7. It says this, And then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, for forgives iniquity and transgressions and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren in the third and the fourth generation. That's powerful. Because what Moses is writing about to the nation of Israel is say, wake up. God is gracious. He's kind. He's chesed. Remember that word chesed? Long-suffering. A love that suffers long. And God is willing to forgive. And he's, he wants to go all the way to the end. But, but... Don't take God's long suffering for granted. Because if you remain in sin, He will visit the consequences of that sin upon you and upon your kids and upon your grandkids. That should be a sobering thought. That your behavior right now will have a direct impact on your grandkids. That's sobering, isn't it? You think about the dysfunction that is in your life or the sin or the repetitive actions and how it has that impact upon the next generation and the generation after that. Does it have to? No, it doesn't have to. You can break that generational sin by the power of God and His Spirit if you're born again and if you look to the new model. And that model being Jesus. So you look at your life and you say, well... Am I self-deceived? What was the self-deception that was here? What was this generational sin cycle that was here? And it was the self-reliance. And so what he does is he says, I want you to consider Israel. Now, when did Israel become God's son? In Exodus. 
When God chose the nation of Israel, pulled them out of Exodus and said, I will be your God, you'll be my people. And he led them via Moses through a body of water. Remember the name of the body of water? The what? Red Sea. As if it were a baptism of taking them out. And we would call this the baptism of Moses as he was leading them out. One of the things that we saw in here, in these four verses, the word all repeated. Multiple times. And they were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized with the Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate of the spiritual food and all drank of the same spiritual drink. All. What does that mean? That means collectively the nation all experienced the same spiritual power and blessing. Everybody had the same opportunity. The whole nation. However many million that came out of Egypt, they all experienced the power, the presence, and the provision of God. So that means that everybody has the same spiritual basis to move forward with. When we think about this idea of baptism, this baptism of Moses, as I said, is going through the Red Sea. It's this overwhelming experience. We've all experienced that. When Jesus comes into your heart, transforms your life, and the Holy Spirit fills you, it's this baptism. We had a water baptism on Sunday that talks about being immersed in that experience, that confession. And so what Paul is doing is he's making the connection between, between the power, provision, and presence of God in the nation of Israel and that of the restoration of the people in Corinth, the Gentiles. And he says, we all. We're all connected. We're all brothers. We're all sons of God. Just as a believer is born again and becomes a child of God through Jesus. So what do you do with that transformational experience? How do you respond when, when you experience the power of God that transforms your life? And the God that provides. Notice how he says in 3 and 4, They all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock, which has followed them as the rock... In Christ Jesus. So, what did God provide for the nation of Israel in the wilderness? Remember what it was called? It was called what? Manna. You know what manna means? What is it? Why? Because they didn't know what it was. They went outside. God says, I'm going to give you bread from heaven. It's going to fall like dew in the ground. You only get to collect it once a day. And then on the, on the sixth day, you get to collect twice as much. And don't try to take more than what you need. So, they went, okay, I don't know what it is. We'll just go out there, we find it, and it's this wafer-like dew kind of thing. They can mold, and they can make manna, and they, God would feed them. Why? Because they complained because there was no food. They went out, and they go, what is it? I don't know. It's food. So they start calling it manna, and God provided that same spiritual food. Do you remember how God provided for them with water? They were complaining. There's no water, right? So they go to Horeb, and, and so they go and... God tells Moses, go and strike the rock. When he struck the rock, what happened? Water came gushing out. When we go to, well, I'd love to go. We can't get there right now. But if you go to um, the true Mount Sinai and you can see the rock of Horeb and you can see this rock. It's a huge rock. It's been split in two and the whole sides are all washed out and smoothed out from a gushing force of water. It's just an amazing thing and they can see altars all around it. They all experience that same food and that same water. But the question is, why spiritual? 
Why would Paul say they, say they experience the same spiritual food in the same spiritual water? What's he referring to? It was real food. It was real water. But what was the source? It was God. It was divine. And it was divinely provided. The food was necessary for life. The water was necessary for life. And we read in Luke twenty-two nineteen to 20 at the Lord's Supper, and he had taken some of the bread and gave thanks, and he broke it and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after that, eaten, and he said, Take this cup, it's poured out for you. It's the covenant in my new blood. Jesus has divinely given us everything that's necessary for life. Spiritual food and spiritual water are the wine that is there for his body and his blood. When we do communion, that's what we're celebrating. The sustenance of life. The church in Corinth was experiencing the same divine provision through Jesus' body and blood that Israel did in the real provision in the desert. Linking them two together. Why was Paul making the link? Paul was making the link in this case because it was necessary for the church of Corinth to understand that the same God that provided and was blessing Israel in the wilderness is the same God that's providing and blessing for them in Corinth right now. Okay? We agree on that. Same spiritual blessing. How are you responding to that spiritual blessing that's different than the nation of Israel or are you responding like them? Paul says that the rock was Christ, which is an interesting statement because Paul takes this this condition of a rock and he takes it all the way back into the wilderness in a, in a Christophany revelation of saying that it, Jesus is like this rock, but he says within this, notice what Jesus says in seven, John seven thirty eight. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow what? Rivers, torrents of living water. Everything that is written in the Old Testament is a shadow picture or teaching, historical, that points forward to Jesus. And so you can see Jesus in this element. This, this presence of Christ, this provision that is there. But the question that he brings out in verse 5, he says, Nevertheless, which is a super strong word in Greek. It, it's, a, it's a position of apposition. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they lay, were laid low in the wilderness. Okay. History lesson. God's provision, power, and presence... And protection was all in the wilderness for everybody. They all experienced it, right? Yet, verse 5 says, there was a group, the majority of them, all died. Why? God was not well pleased with them. Why? Why was God not well pleased with the nation of Israel in the wilderness? Now, it doesn't say they all died. It says most of them. Why? Because within that we see that God was leaving a remnant and there was a remnant. Not all did rebel against God. But what happened was, despite the redemption and everything that God had done in the nation of Israel, 
despite the blessing, despite the provision, despite everything that God had done, Israel became complacent in the wilderness and grumbled and complained against God. Now, I know Christians today never do that. What had happened? Their heart had grown cold. They became self-centered. They would fall back into idolatry. They would complain against God as he's going to unpack this. Church of Corinth, after God's done all of this to save you, you're falling back into the same mode. For the Christian of 2022, after all that God has done for you, you find yourself falling back into that same mold. Complaining, grumbling, doubting. God, I don't know that you can do this. God, why did you take me out of this place? You, you, you would have, it would have been better to leave me in Egypt. At least there I knew where I was and all of the different ways that they complained and grumbled. God, you took me out here to die? Paul is quoting... And referring to Psalm 95, verses 8 through 11. He says this, Do not harden your hearts as in Meribah, as in the day of Massa, in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation, and said, They are a people who err in their heart. They do not know my ways, therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into what? My rest. This should be a check for our hearts. When we look at how God has, has provided for us and protected us and kept us, saved us from hellfire, and then we get into a situation that is a little bit uncomfortable and we start moaning and complaining, God, you really didn't care about me. God, you can't provide for me. God, you can't... You, you, you know, I, I just should go back into the world, go find my pleasure there. Will you be approved by God? Does God approve that? No. And that's the challenge. God does not reward rebellion. And so the first lesson that we have to learn from history is don't go the way that the nation of Israel did. Don't go back into that old life and think that that old life is going to be Pleasing to God because it wasn't in the beginning. And don't be ungrateful. God wasn't well pleased and there were many that were laid low in the wilderness. There was a lot of people that died. In fact, a whole generation died off because of that. Paul goes on in verses 6 through 11 and he describes how the wrath of God came down upon them. It says this, and now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not note crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written, note, for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. 
One of the things when you look, you look for key things in Bible study. So in verses 1 through 5, the word all is repeated multiple times. If it's repeated, what should you do? Pay attention to it. The other thing that you've got to understand is what's called an inclusio. It's a bracket. So in verse 6 and verse 11 is an inclusio. It's a bracket. In other words, it's a, it's a thought that needs to be kept together. And within that, he says, the thought that needs to be kept together is the thing in between these parentheses or brackets are all examples for us not to repeat. No, don't do this. Don't repeat these actions. And so within this, he says, these are the examples that we need to avoid. Why? Because it keeps your heart, note verse 6, from craving the evil things that they craved. Does this flesh want what it wants when it wants it? Does it crave evil? Absolutely it does. And so what ends up happening is my spirit is renewed and I'm given a new heart, but this flesh wants to rebel against God. And so this flesh wants what it wants. And it wants to go back to those old lifestyles. And the problem that we have is we all have an addiction. We all do. You know what our addiction is? Sin. Our addiction is sin. It manifests itself in a lot of different ways. But we're all addicted to sin. Why? Because sin for this flesh feels good. It's enjoyable to this flesh. The problem is our flesh will drive us away from God and into rebellion. And the problem is, is that every time we satisfy that craving, what happens to the craving? It gets stronger. And you give it a little bit more. And it gets stronger. And you give it a little bit more. And it gets stronger. And so we think about that. It, Every little bit you, you give into that flesh, the flesh goes, oh yeah, that was good. Can I have a little bit more, please? There are certain foods that I just cannot stop eating. Hawaiian chips, barbecue style. One bag is not enough. In and out, four by four, animal style. I was bummed when they stopped serving more than four patties on a burger. I'm wondering if God moved me up into this part of Oregon to get me away from my addiction. I don't know, but if you notice, my addiction's following me. It's moving closer. But you think about that. You think about how addictive sin can be. If you think about that in light of meth, is meth highly addictive? Extremely addictive. I sat through a... a doctor's presentation on the effects of meth on the brain. And there are some people that once they take their first hit of meth, they will be addicted for life. Um, there are other doctors that say that doesn't happen. But, but how does it happen? Well, I came across a, just a, a short description of the effects of meth. And it says this, methamphetamine affects dopamine levels in the brain, causing a flood of neurotransmitters that disrupts normal functioning. Dopamine is not only responsible for the feeling pleasure, but also for the motivation, movement, memory functions, learning, and reward processing. In short, 
Meth makes a person feel good and makes them want to continue taking it to keep feeling that way. The only problem is meth rewires your brain. And it gets you to a place where you were really messed up. So much so that it is documented that women will give their children away in order to get meth. It'll rewire them so they don't, they don't know how to feel pleasure again the right way. When the dopamine sensors don't have the ability to hit the right spots within the brain, it really just it rewires it and messes it up. So why is meth here? Because Satan wants to rob, steal, kill, and destroy. And he's trying to bring in all these substitutes of the flesh. Our flesh craves sin. And we struggle with these cravings and will struggle with these cravings as long as we're in this body. It's going to be there. So how do you deal with these cravings of sin? As Paul says, these things are written as our example so that we would not crave the evil things. How do we do that? First, we've got to recognize the damage that it causes. And then second, you've got to get away from it, as he's going to talk about in a little bit later. Paul would say that you need to consider this body dead to sin. Think about that for a minute. If you're dead, can you feel anything? Can you crave anything if you're dead? No. Why? Because you're dead. There's no cravings if you're dead. So you have to consider yourself dead to these things. And give no room for them. But the minute that you reactivate life in that area of your body, it will take over. It wasn't too long ago. Well, it probably is by this time. I would say probably about six years ago or seven years ago. I went out on a cardiac arrest call on a, on a man in the community, got there. The needle was still stuck in his arm. And I was counseling the dad who told me that his son had kicked heroin and been off heroin for three years. Three years sober. And something happened. He lost his job that day and a couple other things. And he decided, uh, you know, I'm just going to go back to my old way. My old way. What I used to do. I'm going to get high. The only difficulty is he didn't realize that having been sober for that long a time, he could not take the same kind of hit that he used to when he was using. And he overdosed. You see, it is not something that we can start, stop, go back to. Because every time you re-enter the realm of sin, it will attack you and hurt you worse. How do I know that? Historically, look at the nation of Israel. How many times did they enter into idolatry? God would correct them. They would do good for a while and then they would fall back into it. If you don't believe me, read the book of Judges. And the cycle of sin, sorrow, suffering, and shame. And then a judge would have to come in and redeem them again. And they would go through it again and again and again. And these cycles. These things are written for our learning so we don't go back into these things. Church of Corinth and Church of WCF. What things? Verses 7 through 10. Paul gives this list. The first one is idolatry. Idolatry was a generational sin. He said, do not be idolaters as some of them were. 
And the people sat down and eat and drank and stood up and play. Idolatry was a generational sin because in Egypt, for 400 years, they learned to be good idolaters. But when they were taken out of Egypt and taken into the wilderness, all they knew was idolatry and they just were getting to know Yahweh God. And when Moses went up on the Mount Sinai in order to get the Ten Commandments, what did they do? Moses is gone. We're going to go back to an idol, idolatry. Aaron, make us a, an idol. And they gave them all their jewelry, the gold that they got from the Egyptians, and they formed this golden calf. Remember what Moses said when he came down to Aaron? Aaron, what would you do? I don't know. I don't know. We threw the gold in. Out popped out a calf. I don't know. After all of the experience of deliverance, Mount Sinai, they're there, and God's on top of the mountain. God is present. Moses is up on the hill, and they go back to idolatry. And Paul quotes this. Exodus chapter 32, verses 4 to 6, says this. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God. Or This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Did you see that? This is the God that brought you out of Egypt. And now, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So that next day that they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, quote, and sat, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What are you doing? You fell right back into your old lifestyle, didn't you? You know what the first command that was written on the tablet is? No other gods. They already broke it. They blew it. Don't be like them. As Paul quotes this action, he's quoting it from the standpoint of it being a repulsive action within that. And he says at that point, 23,000 fell dead in one day. Immediately. Do you imagine 23,000 people dropping dead? Was God pleased with their action? Absolutely not. Do you think they would learn? Nope. Nope. Oh, there went George. It's interesting how we don't learn from the mistakes of other people. It's amazing to me in this culture that these, these people, they didn't get it. This eating and this drinking. Psalm 106.21 says this, They forgot God their Savior who had done great things in Egypt. How do we know that? Because who did they give credit to for the deliverance out of Egypt? They gave credit to who? Baal. When God does amazing things in your life, instead of giving credit to God, you give credit to somebody else. And that's how you know you're on that slippery slope of idolatry. Even to the point of giving credit yourself. The other thing, that, the second thing he says that they did, don't do, is don't act immorally within that. Well, what was the immorality? If you notice the last word that Paul used and the last word that Moses uses is that he rose up to play. 
That is one of those kind biblical words that says they were having an orgy. Because sexual immorality was all part of idol worship. Could you imagine? You're at the mountain of God. God is up on top of that mountain. And you are worshiping an idol made out of gold from the country that you just got delivered from. And you're having sexual immorality that is right there at the foot of this mountain. Because they forgot all about God. And they were dancing around Baal in this golden calf. You can read more about it in Numbers 25. Paul says, no sexual immorality. Would this hit home for the church of Corinth? Absolutely it would. Because the goddess Diana was full of of temple prostitutes. The people that were coming out of the idolatry of Corinth at that time, the city was full of sexual immorality. Which implies the fact that these Christians that were now Christians in Corinth were going back into idolatry and sexual immorality. How do we know that? Because when we studied last week, what was the accusation? They're going into the temple of idols and having festivals. Which meant that they were doing everything that they were doing before. Yet calling themselves Christians within that. Which brings him to the third challenge in verse 9. They were testing. Notice he says, do not or don't let us try or test the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed with serpents. If you remember that, you can read about it in Numbers 21. Where they were testing God. What does that mean? That means that they were proving God. They were challenging God. Whether or not they, God was going to be real, that God's going to really care for them. Deuteronomy 6.16 says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested Him in Massa. We've got to be careful. When do we put God to the test? When we challenge God's authority. When we challenge God's character. When we challenge God, do you really care about me? The answer is what? Does God really care about you? How do you know God cares about you? He gave His Son. How else do you know God cares about you? Well, you're breathing. You're here. God does care about you. The difficulty is, in, in the Israel in the wilderness, like we do, what happens is, In our carnality and in our arrogance, we turn the superior God into a subordinate, making ourselves superior. Have you ever been guilty of telling God what to do? I have. When I I don't know my place as a subordinate and I start telling the superior what needs to happen, I'm disrespecting the superior That's offensive to God. We don't tell God to do anything. We submit to God's perfect will. But they were challenging God and they were telling God what to do. And in Numbers 21, they were challenging God's authority so much so. Well, how were they challenging God? They were grumbling against God. Now, I know Christians today don't grumble about their situations. You never do, do you? Do you ever grumble about your situation? Complain? 
Complain about where you're at. Complain about what's happening. Complaining about God's provision. Complaining about the people that God has around you. Complaining about your circumstances. That's challenging God. It got so bad that the whole nation was doing it. God said, enough. Enough. Moses, build a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, put it in the middle of the camp. And watch what happens. God sent vipers from the outside of the camp working inwardly. Now, he did this intentionally. You say, God brought death intentionally? Yes. Through judgment. And he told the people in Numbers 21, he said, look it. The vipers are coming in. If you get bit by a viper, look to the pole, the snake on the pole, and you'll be saved. If you don't, you're dead. What was the action all about? What was a shadow of Jesus being on the cross? Jesus would even refer to it. Just as the Son of Man, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. We've all been bitten by the sting of death and the sting of sin. And unless you look to Jesus and the cross, you're going to die in that sin. God was judging them. Numbers 21.8 says, Moses, make this fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall become about that everyone who has been, when he looks, he will live. So what is that action about? The action is simply about this, saying, God, I know I'm dying and I need you. God, I am desperate for you at this point and I submit to you for healing. You ever notice that the serpent on the pole is the symbol for medicine? Even carries forward to today to bring that healing. The fourth thing that he continues on is with this grumbling. The testing and the grumbling. Grumbling is some of them, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. What ended up happening in the ultimate act of grumbling? The ultimate act of grumbling is the fact that they would die within the land. When they got to the river Jordan, and God says, I want you to go into the land, and I want you to spy out the land, I want you to take the, take the land. They come out. Do you remember all ten come out? Who are the ones that gave a good report? They were who? Joshua and... Caleb, what do the other guys say? There's giants in the land. We, we can't go in. You led us all the way out here just to kill us. God says, fine. You don't want to go in? Don't go in. Go wander around for 40 years. You're all going to die in the land except for three. Joshua, Caleb, and Moses. And I'll do this with the next generation. Why? Because God decided that he was going to kill off that generational sin of grumbling and start with another generation. The Jewish journey in the wilderness was much like a Christian's journey in our wilderness. When we come to that place where we've got to trust in Christ, we've got to cross where we've got to believe. The church of Corinth had come to a place where they become so self-centered and, and so deceived that they were doing these things again. But we can't blame them so much because we see these same things in our lives, don't we? We do. So how do we change it? Well, 
You start by looking at the outcome. The end result of this behavior is death. And so we seek to change it. How do we change it? Well, we've, we use the way that God's provided out. Notice in verses 12 and 13. He says, No temptation has overtaken you, but as such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you be able to endure it. So many people look at that and they say, the way of escape so I get out of the temptation. No. The way is through it. To get all the way through it. And so, what is the solution that Paul gives? What does he say the solution is? Stop being so self-confident. Notice in verse 12, he says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he doesn't fall. Self-confidence is going to crush you. One of the dangerous things is the one that thinks that he is stand and confident in his own behavior. And Paul started out, don't be ignorant. And the second thing is, don't be self-confident. One of the warning signs of self-confidence is a phrase that says, I can handle this. Or, I got this. For example, the alcoholic who is in their sobriety and have been sober for a number of years and goes to a wedding, a family wedding, and there's alcohol there, and there's champagne there, and the alcoholic says, it's just a toast. Is there danger in that? Sure. Why? Because he fed the craving. I can handle this. The gambler, right, who has got an addiction with gambling. It's just a lotto ticket. The liar. It's only a little white lie. The adulterer. It's just a little bit of a longing look. The one that's addicted to porn. It's just an R-rated movie. The one that thinks that they could stand, take heed, lest he fall. Israel. It's just a little idol. You see how it goes? This little bit of sin, this little bit of self-control, I can do this. But what does he say? He says, I've given you victory, power through the Holy Spirit to make it through it. How do you make it through it? You make it through it by the power. God provides provision, protection, power within this and his presence via the Holy Spirit. And he says this. It's important for 13. No temptation that is overtaking you is such as common to man. In other words, this temptation is not unusual for you. Nor was it unusual for Jesus, because we have a high priest that was tempted in every way, yet did not sin. Okay, so what does that mean? That means Jesus knows how much you can handle. Why? Because he knows what the pressure is. Then he goes on and he says, and God is faithful, you can trust him, who will not allow you to be tempted or tested beyond what you are able. That is a sovereign limitation. We see it in Job. Satan wanted to test Job. God says you can do everything but take his life. That's a pretty big test. Do you realize that when Satan wants to come and test you, tempt you, draw you in, God says, nope, Carrie can handle this, but you don't get to go there. 
There's a limit. Okay, so if God gives a limit and establishes a divine limit on the testing and the temptation, then that means I don't have to give in to it. I have everything I need not to give in to the temptation. You say, well, Carrie, then why do I give in to the temptation? Because you think you can handle it. You don't flee. You don't run away. You don't recognize it for what it really is. He says he will provide everything that you need so you are able to have that way escape through it. Years ago, when I lived in California, we'd go to Disneyland, and many of you have gone to Disneyland, whether it was Space Mountain or some of the bigger rides. Do you remember about halfway through, there's this one door, and there's a sign that sits above it with a lot of writing. It says, if you get motion sickness, if you're pregnant, or yeah, other, right? Why is that door there? Because halfway through the line, you're realizing, this was not a good idea. Right? That's the chicken exit. But keep in mind, you decided to get in the line to begin with. Well, that's not what God's talking about. He says, I'm going to provide a way through it. What is the way through it? The power and the provision and the protection of God to take you through that difficulty. But you've got to lean on Him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. And in all your ways, do what? Acknowledge Him and He will what? Direct your paths. If you're an Awanas person, you should know that. (laughs) We look at that and it's amazing. Because we trust in the power. How did Moses, Joshua, and Caleb get into the land? Only three from the original group. Because they trusted in God with that. So then he changes course a little bit as he provides that way through in verses 14 to 33 he says now this is the proper behavior now we've done the confrontation this is what you shouldn't do here's what you should do very simple verse 14 therefore my beloved flee from idolatry i love the fact that he doesn't make it rocket science it's very simple what happens when you see sin Run. Don't play with it. Run. Some of you heard that my dog got skunked last week. That dog stunk. And then came into my house and brought the the skunk smell with her. And in the backyard. It was a mess. You know what I've had to do for the last week? I have to go out. No. I'll bury the dog. I have to go out every morning and make sure that skunk is not anywhere near that. You know why? Why do you think I have to go out before the dog and make sure the skunk is gone? Because the dog is dumb. And, and there's a scent out there and... She got hit in the face. I opened that door, and I know the skunk's not out there, you know, later on or whatever. Every time. You know what that dog does? Every time. Runs as fast as she can to the smell. You are a dumb dog. Maybe I should bury you. 
We don't run to sin. We should run away from it. We shouldn't run towards idolatry. We should run away from it. We shouldn't entertain it. But we should avoid it. Scripture says, can a man take fire in his bosom and not get burned? The answer is no, you can't. You're going to get burned, you hug a torch. So he says, therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you who judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which the bread we break in the sharing of the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Now look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that is not anything? No, I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Literally anger. We are not stronger than he. Are we? No. So Paul gives a series of six rhetorical questions throughout this section. And the, the, the things that he says is you've got to flee. And he gives the reasons why using logic. To wise men, I, do, I want you to understand this. And the first thing that he talks about is this cup of blessing. It's in the context of the Corinthians going into the temple of idols and having a party like they used to do. You say, well, what's the problem with that? They have liberty. They have freedom. Here's the difficulty with this. They've already partaken of the Lord's Supper the Lord's body and the Lord's blood. So in one moment, they're celebrating the Lord's Supper in an act of worship. And in the next moment, they're drinking the cup unto demons, which is a totally different God. Do you guys see an inconsistency with that? How is it that one moment you're worshiping Yahweh God, you're worshiping Jesus, you're celebrating the sacrifice, the redemption. How is it one moment you're there and then the next moment you are participating in pagan idolatry that is worshiping demons? There's an absolute inconsistency there, isn't there? What in effect are you really doing if you're a child of God and you are? And you are participating in the Lord's Supper, the body and the, the blood that is all part of you and you're connected. In effect, what are you really doing? You are part of the body of Christ who is being brought and taking the body of Christ into the temple of demons. And partying with them. Paul says, you're wise. You should know better. Is that fleeing idolatry or, or entertaining it? Entertaining it, for sure. And so Paul re rules out, he says, these are incompatible actions. They're inconsistent actions. No different than the nation of Israel. The same priests in the Aaronic priesthood would sacrifice meat 
to Yahweh God, and they would participate in that, and the people in the fellowship offering, the same people would do that, then would go out to the high places in Jerusalem, and they would take part in pagan sacrifices and eat that meat. There's an inconsistency there, isn't there? Remember the debate that we covered last week. Can a Christian go into a pagan temple and participate in pagan activities? Yes, you have the freedom to do that. But should you? Should you? Is that the right thing to do? Is that the correct thing to do? The answer is absolutely no. The difficulty is that the, because of pagan festivals were such a part of the Corinthian lifestyle, and they grew up with it, they thought it as normative. And they needed to stop it. Just because you did it as a kid does not make it okay for you to do it as a Christ follower. And so we see that even in different festivals today. Why? Because it has such a strong pull on our flesh. A strong pull for these guys on their emotions within these things. Will God be pleased with you? Verse 22. Or are you going to provoke Him? He says here in 19 to 22, don't be inconsistent. The pagan festival, and they were, they were pushing it off. Well, it's just a festival. It's just a barbecue. No, it's more than that. It's more than just a barbecue. It's a pagan meal. And the theology of the Lord's Supper is much deeper than just eating a cracker and grape juice. Church, you are the body of Christ. And wherever you go, you take the body of Christ with you. Cannot be separated into whatever activities you do and participate in. While you may have the freedom to do it, what are you saying when you do it? I think ultimately Paul is saying, don't engage in the forms of idolatry. It's going to provoke God's wrath. It's going to provoke God's anger. God's not going to bless that. His last words are this. Okay, what should I do? Very simple. Very simple. Two things. Actually, three things. Flee idolatry. We already covered that one. But what should I do? Do everything for the glory of God. And do everything for the benefit of the other. That's how he ends it. Look at verses uh, 23 to 11. One. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and it all contains. But if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go in, eat anything they set before you without asking a question for conscience sake. But if anyone asks to you this meat, Sacrifice to idols, don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. Now, I mean not to your own conscience, but to the other man's. 
Why is my freedom judged by others' conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered? And concerning that which was given thanks, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jew or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own, but profit, but for the profit of many, so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. So what should you do? He circles back around to the meat offered with idols, because that was the big deal. If you go to somebody's house, or I'm sorry, first, if, if you go to the market and you buy meat, here's what you do. Don't ask where it came from. Just buy it and enjoy it. Why? Because the meat in itself is not bad. It's what's attached to the meat. But if you have a problem, if you ask and they say, well, this meat was offered to idols, for your conscience sake, don't take it. Why? Because you're sinning against your conscience. Second case. If you go over to somebody's house and they serve you meat, don't ask. They got a good deal down at the market. Half off. Just don't ask for conscience sake. But if someone comes up to you and says, hey, you know, that meat, we got a really good deal on it because we got it over at the idol market. Don't eat it. Why? For conscience sake. For your conscience sake? No. For the person who brought it up. Because if somebody's bringing it up, it's a test. It's a test. They want to see what you're going to do. How are you going to react? The potential damage for the other is greater than not knowing. You just don't say anything. But if it comes up, then don't do it. Or best, or best, always consider the other first. You say, but Carrie, you don't understand. That was brisket. That was really good. Everything you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, you do for the glory of God first. That's the vertical relationship. And you do for the benefit of the other. That's the horizontal relationship. And if your conscience bothers you about doing it, that is the Holy Spirit convicting you. If there is one twinge that you shouldn't do this, don't do it. Avoid it. Flee. If there is one part that feeds the cravings of your flesh that draws you back in, run from it. Ultimately, your job is to make God smile. Not make Him angry. Make Him smile. Now you've got a choice. Do I want a happy face or a sad face? I'm choosing happy. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that we can come in this place, that we can study your word and grow by it. These hard passages that we're going through here in Corinthians are challenging our being and our essence. Lord, I pray that, that you would walk with us daily so we would know how to get through these challenges. And as we go out tonight and honor you, may everything we say and do put a smile on your face. 
We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand and we'll close. benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Everyone said, Amen, and praise Jesus. We'll see you on Sunday.
Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.